know something about that. If you got your Bibles with you, why don't you open up to the book of Joshua. And we are going to be taking a look at a couple of chapters tonight, Lord willing. Joshua chapter 11 is where we'll begin. If you remember last time we finished up the, the uh, southern campaign of the, the war that Joshua brings to take uh, the promised land. So what we saw was Joshua bring the army by God's direction across the middle, drive down south, come back up to the middle at Gilgal, and tonight we're going to see him push those armies north as God leads Joshua to conquer the promised land for the children of Israel. So as we take a look, begins in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, when Jabin, king of Hazar, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, the king of Shimron, and the king of Asphath, and the kings who were from the north in the mountains, in the plains south of Chinnerah, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east, in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, in the mountains, in the Hivite below Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. So what do we just read? What are we just talking about? Hazor is the furthest controlling city to the north. So the king to the furthest controlling city in the north, he gathers another conglomeration of other kings. Now we just saw... Uh, Joshua have victory over the five kings that gathered together in the south. We see the kings of the north gathering together under the king of Hazor. The king of Hazor actually ruled all the kingdoms of the north. He was the king over it all. And all these others are minor kings underneath him. There's a couple of cities that their names are going to change and you would know them more by their more familiar name, perhaps. When we talked about Chinneroth, we read about Chinneroth there in verse 2. Chinneroth means the harp. It is also called the Sea of Galilee. So that's the region of the Galilee that uh, the, 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 the kings are rising up against Joshua and he gathers them together to bring them in this one place. Now it says, so they went out in verse 4. They and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. So it's a huge army. Josephus, who is a, a Jewish historian around the time of Rome, he estimates the number in his history, uh, he estimates it an army of 300,000, on top of that 300,000, 20 thousand cavalry or i'm sorry ten thousand cavalry and twenty thousand chariots so this is the army that's gathered in the north coming down against the children of israel and so it lays out that the they're a huge multitude huge multitude another way of saying huge multitude as many as the sand on the seashore a lot of people so a lot of people are coming down a great many horses and chariots now when you look at that, recognize that in the ancient times as the height of warfare. And the strongest armies had chariots and horses. But what did God tell the children of Israel not to multiply? Yeah, he told them, don't multiply for yourself horses. 
Don't start building this army that you're going to put your hope in the technology that you have. Or that you're going to put the hope in the plans that you have. He wants their hope to be in Him. The victory is going to come through Him, whether by many or by few. And we learn that from Jonathan. Don't we learn that from Jonathan when, when the, the Philistines were gathered in a great number? And Jonathan, he looks over at his armor bearer and he says, You know, God is able to deliver, whether by many or few. Well, I believe you and I could go over there and whoop them ourselves. Just let's go. And Jonathan's armor bearer said, yeah, sounds good to me. Now, they don't have nothing fancy. The armor bearer's carrying whatever he can handle carrying while they scale up this cliff to get to the top where the, the, the Philistines are gathered. And they say, now, we get close and we hear them say, you know, that they're a little bit freaked out. Then we're going to go for it. That was their, you know, fleece that they put out for the Lord. And they get up there and sure enough, they hear this kind of an attitude from those armies. So Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and says, let's go. And they just come charging over the mountains, two of them, and send the whole army scattering. It wasn't because Jonathan was such a gnarly dude, you know, that he had some kind of kung fu ninja moves and he was spinning all that stuff around and they just freaked and ran. It's because the spirit of God was with them. And the Lord said to the children of Israel, I will put your enemies to flight. You just have to have faith to get into the fight and watch them do the work. So the same thing here. We, the Lord very clearly lays out for them. And as we look at Joshua, keep in mind, Joshua is a key for you and I. There's two things we read out of Joshua. That is how the believer can enter into the victorious Christian life. And Joshua is a mirror uh, image almost of the book of Revelation. And the battles that occur in the book of Revelation. We'll see some of that, uh, a little bit of some of that tonight. Maybe when we go through Revelation in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about Joshua or years or however long it takes us to get there. But we'll get there. And as we go through, we'll recognize that. So as we look at it, we want, to, we want to know, God wants our faith to be in Him. And I, that's a scary thing sometimes, isn't it? For example, let's say you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, as some of the, the members of our congregation have heard of late, that you have cancer. And the doctors put together their plan. Hey, we're going to do this kind of surgery. We're going to start chemo at this time. You know, we're going to do all these things. I'm not suggesting that we don't do those things. I'm saying, where do you put your trust? In the doctors, in the chemo, in the plans? Or do you put your trust in the true and living God? Because he doesn't need any of that stuff. Or he may use all of it, right? So we just, we just got to press into him. Grab a hold of him. He's the one who delivers. Now, in a couple of chapters, we're going to see the tribe of Joseph get a little bit freaked out because the enemies that they're going to face have a lot of chariots and horses. We have to always be careful that we learn the lessons of the victories that God's already won for us. We, end up, we tend to have a short memory. God delivers us and a little while later we forget and we start to freak out about the same kind of thing again. We want to have a little deeper understanding, a little deeper memory, knowing God is able. God is able. No, it doesn't matter what it is. God is able. And we got to be okay with what God chooses to do and put ourselves 
in his hands and let him guide, let him lead, let him direct. So here we go, all these horses and chariots. In verse 5 it says, And when all these kings had met together, they came and they camped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. The waters of Miram is also known as the, the plain of, of Eshkelon. It overlooks a mountain called Megiddo. You and I might recognize the plain by another name, Armageddon. The place that the scripture talks about where the last battle will be fought against our Joshua, Jesus Christ, our deliverer, the one who is coming to claim the victory for us and for the nation as well. So here they've gathered together in the, in the plains of Armageddon, in the valley overlooked by Megiddo. Verse 6, But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them. Now, if the Lord says that, what does that, that clue us into? Yeah, don't be afraid, and that means he probably was. Right? He probably was. I mean, I, 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 I imagine, I know for myself, there are times that it doesn't matter it, over and over again. When you see those enemies coming and you see all that they have, there's got a bit, a little bit inside of you that, that's kind of just on the edge of freaking out. You look at that massive army. You, you realize, and listen, realize, we're talking about more horses and chariots, and the children of Israel have what to combat that? Nothing. That's like going up against tanks with pitchforks. You don't have... You don't have within yourself or within your army the ability to counteract what they have. But you have Almighty God. And God looks out at them and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And he tells them about this time. I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. And you will hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. The Lord calls them to hamstring all the horses. Now, that's a lot of horses. 30,000 horses, that's a lot of horses. And what God is saying in the hamstring of those horses is, you don't need these tanks. You don't need these missiles. You don't need these things that this army had all its trust in. You don't need it. So don't take it. So he had them hamstring them. If they hadn't been hamstrung, they'd have been tempted to have themselves instant little cavalry, right? An instant little group of chariots. Well, look, our army just got stronger. We got horses, and, and you guys can learn to ride those horses, and you fellows over here learn to ride those chariots, right? But God gave Joshua very specific instructions. Hamstring them. Make them worthless for, for anything other than just staying alive. Don't kill them. But make them worthless. Worthless for fighting, worthless for working. You know, just hamstring them and cut them loose. And so, the Lord says, this time tomorrow. Now, this time today, it's a little bit freakish. Humongous army, whole bunch of chariots, whole bunch of cavalry. And God's word to them was, do not be afraid. How many times in the scripture have we seen the Lord build for us a picture of a little boy going against a giant? 
of those who maybe have no business winning going against insurmountable odds. How many times in our life are we going to face things that feel the same way? That feel the same way, like, oh my goodness, how are we going to get through this? How are we going to overcome? How are we going to be able to gain the victory in this situation? I mean, don't just look at it like armies. It could be illness. It could be struggles within family, struggles within your work, struggles with neighbors, struggles with with people just doing you wrong. I mean, a hundred possibilities. But in every one of those scenarios, the Lord is saying, you got to put your trust in me and not in everything else. And I don't know about you, I, for one, usually start putting my trust in everything else. And normally it starts with the plans of Jackie. Well, I know how I can get myself out of this. This is my plan, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this. And usually it's at the collapsing of my little sandcastle that I was building, and all my little plans of how it was all going to work out, that I begin to realize, wow, you know, like, like others i got to put my eyes on Jesus Christ and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because sometimes the Lord may tell you, I don't want you to do nothing. Oh, come on, Jackie, why would he say that? Well, that's what the Lord's message through Jeremiah the prophet was to the nation of Judah. I want you to do nothing. The armies of the enemy are coming, and they're going to win. Put down your swords, put down your shields, and go willingly. Now, usually nations are really happy to hear messages like that, right? They, they branded Jeremiah a traitor, and they wouldn't hear him. And they rose up against what the word of the Lord came to say, and they were slaughtered because they put their trust in themselves, the might of their arms, the, 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 the treaties they made with nations all around them that were going to help them beat Babylon. But God was telling them, I don't want you to do nothing. You're going to be taken. There are some times that that's what God's word for us is. There's other times where God's word is like God's word to Gideon. When the Lord comes to Gideon, he says, Oh, Gideon, you have too much. Tell your army, we'll cut to the quick, tell your army, everyone who's afraid could go home. Now, how many people do you think went? He got 30,000, and I, I think 20,000 left on that call. And then he took the rest and had him go drinking the water. And a lot, there's a lot of commentaries about why, who, why God took who. I'll tell you why God took who. God took the ones that was the fewest. He said, the Lord's just watching up there knowing, well, this is how many guys are going to drink this way. This is how many guys are going to drink that way. And I don't want you to have more than 300 people. So then Gideon's got 300 people and he's facing this insurmountable enemy. And you know, God said, okay, now I'm going to train all you guys in special forces. And I'm going to show you guys how to make the most out of your might and your ability. And I'm going to teach you how to make special swords. And I'm going to, yeah, right? That's what God did? No, but they didn't even need their swords. It's crazy. The Lord said, here, take a trumpet. Here's a chauffeur. Here's a jar pot. Put a torch in that jar pot and let's go to battle. Uh, I'd I'd feel a whole lot more comfortable with an M4. 
I'd feel more comfortable with ammo straps around my shoulders like Rambo, you know, M60 under one arm. Okay, Lord, I'm ready. But God said, take a trumpet. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, you could do some damage with a trumpet. A trumpet was a shofar. It's a goofy-looking, swirly horn. You may get a couple of whacks with that, and it just goes into pieces. The trumpet and a, and a torch underneath a clay pot, lit. It's not even comfortable. And he surrounds the armies, and they sound the trumpet and break the jars, and the light comes forth, and then the army pulls out their swords and does all their thing. No, God smote the enemy with, with confusion, and they wipe each other out. You know, God, look at all the battles in the Old Testament. See if you can find some that are the same. The Lord's going to do it whatever way he can do it so that the people at the end go, that didn't have nothing to do with that neat little note I blew on the trumpet. Or the way I broke, did you see the way I was holding that torch? I mean, by the time it was over, nobody's going, wow, that was us. But everybody's going, that was him. That's the Lord. So in our lives, in the things that we face, the struggles we have, the things that are not right, not fair, and not good, at the beginning of all of that, the Lord calls for us to come before him with everything, right? To trust in the Lord with all our heart. Not to lean into our own understanding, our own plans, our own ideas. Here's how we're going to solve it all. Not to lean into that, but to trust the Lord. And in everything we do, whatever we think we need to do, he says, bring that to me. And I'll direct your path. But I think if we're all honest in the challenges that we face, that last part where we bring all that stuff before the Lord and say, God, what would you have me do? It usually comes somewhere down the line after our plans, after we've, we've run down the road a little ways and we've tried a few things. Then we begin to pray and seek the Lord for the plans. Joshua learned at AI, right? Not to just run out presumptuously thinking you know what's going on. So he seeks the Lord and the Lord's going to tell him. The Lord's going to guide him. God says, I'm going to give you the victory. But the cool thing about this is, the Lord tells him, you're going to have the victory, but God doesn't give him the plan. God says, I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to go into battle, and I want you to know I'm going to give you the victory. And then Joshua is left to put his plan together, to get together with with his guys. You know, still today, the hero of the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, is Joshua. They still study the book of Joshua and the techniques, quote-unquote, that Joshua used in his battles. They're missing one defining point. That Joshua was totally committed to the Lord God Almighty. You want to see an unbeatable army when Israel reaches the point where they recognize Jesus as their Messiah and submit to him? Oh, that's going to be neat. That's going to be neat. Ringside seats for everybody. That'll be a neat time. So, let's go on. He tells them now, 
you're, you're going to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots. You're not going to use any of that stuff, Joshua. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Miram, and they attacked them. So Joshua runs a sneak attack in the valley of Armageddon. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Misrephah, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left, none of them remaining. 330,000 by the estimates of Josephus, all wiped out. One day, the army's done. They gained the great victory. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, every time I read this story of Joshua, it reminds me of another guy who had a pretty good start with the Lord. The first king of Israel, you remember him, head and shoulders above everybody else? Saul had all this promise, right? But there came a particular battle with a king named Agag that the Lord said, I want you to utterly wipe out everything. Every animal, everything, don't take none of it. Leave it all behind. You don't want any of that stuff. And we all know Saul went in and he defeated the enemy, but he also kept the sheep, some of their goats, and he kept the king alive. Until Samuel the prophet came to visit him. And on that day, in that moment, the Holy Spirit is going to be stripped away from Saul, but he's not even going to notice. How come he's not going to notice? Because he wasn't paying any attention anyway. It's always a sad commentary to me. When we turn a deaf ear over and over and over again to the voice of the Spirit speaking within us, at some point, we don't hear them at all. We just grow deaf to, to the movement of God. David, when David sinned, you remember his prayer before the Lord? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David knew what he needed in order to move forward, but Saul, he didn't get it. And to me, there's a moment in the history of the nation of Israel who at one time made a choice and said, we only want to be where your presence is. So wherever the nation of Israel went, there in the midst of their camp was the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle was the Shekinah, the Kabod, the glory, the weight, this light of God in the Holy of Holies. It illuminated, there's no, folks, there's no window in the tabernacle. Light only came two ways. One, the menorah in the holy place, which shone light upon all the things that were done in, in, the, in the daily service of God. But when they went to the holy of holies, beyond a, a veil that was at least a hand's breadth width, so that's pretty wide, what, maybe six inches thick curtain. Not a whole lot of light getting through there. They would walk in there with the sacrifice one time a year. And they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was real. Because there between the cherubim, on the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, was the Shekinah. The kabod, the glory of God. 
was visual. They could see. But somewhere down the line, as the disobedience of the nation of Israel became greater and greater and greater, a priest went into that place, and it wasn't there. But he didn't know, because he had never been in there before and seen it. So he just thought this is how it always was. And the presence of God departed. The Shekinah. I believe it's Ezekiel that's told to write Ichabod. Write Ichabod over the the tabernacle, over the temple. Ichabod means the glory has departed. God's not there. Just like with Saul, the Holy Spirit's taken away and they don't notice. So we want to be in that place where we recognize. So what was the key for Joshua to recognize that he's in that place in obedience to the Spirit? That that was the fact that he did what God told him to do. 1 John would put it this way. That when we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we will keep his commandments And his commandments are not burdensome. Because love will always do more than the law asks. Love will always do more. Love will go further. The law would say if your children are rebellious and and, and need discipline, then, then stone them. But parents, when they love their children, you know how many times that occurred in the nation of Israel? How many times it was recorded? Never. Because love always goes further than the law requires. Love always goes further. Love always gets deeper. And it wasn't because they had to. It was because they loved. Because they loved. That's what, that's what God wants of us. That we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, picture this. Jesus on the cross. Arms spread wide. Body shredded. What was he saying to you and I? I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything that was within him, he loved us. And Jesus said, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself. Do what? Take up your cross. and Follow me. I pray each of us realize that every day we have an opportunity to stand before the God who died for us and say, Lord, I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Joshua showed us that when he obeyed the Lord. Now, common sense would say, Hey, Joshua, keep the chariots. Hey, Joshua, keep the horses. 30,000 horses is a lot of horses, right? And 20,000 chariots, that's a lot of chariots. But it was more important to Joshua to obey God than all that stuff. Because truly for Joshua to be in God's presence was the most important thing. How about for you and I? Do we have our eyes on that chariot or those 30,000 horses? 
or a bigger house or a nicer job or whatever? Do we have our eyes on anything else as the end-all, beat-all? Or are our eyes on the one who paid the ultimate price for us? And his only prize for doing that is you and I. For he is our portion and we are his prize, right? He did all that for us. So Joshua shows us that in his obedience. So Joshua did. And then, verse 10, Then Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. So he went up to Hazor. That's where it all started, right? King Jabin brought the armies down. They met at Armageddon. There in Armageddon, one day battle, Joshua whoops them all, uh, hamstrings the horses. Then he goes right up to the northernmost point of his campaign. Joshua is never going to go higher than Hazor. And he goes up there and he takes that kingdom and he, and, he, and he kills the king up there because they were the head. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them that there was none left breathing. And he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Don't ever forget that all those armies and all those people knew what God required of them, rejected what God required of them, and made open war against the Lord and Joshua. Sound familiar? Because in the very same plane where this battle took, another battle is going to take very much the same way. Where all the armies gathered together in that place of the world are going to turn towards the Mashiach Nagid, the coming Jesus Christ, our Joshua. And the battle is going to end very much the same way. In a short battle, the Lord doesn't even need us. We'll be there, but he don't need us. And he's going to obliterate the enemy. Trample the grapes of wrath alone. And abolish all of those things. But every human being on earth, before that occurs, just like every human being in Canaan, knew what God required, rejected the truth of what God required, had opportunity for repentance changed, said, I don't want repentance, I will not serve God, I don't care what you want to do, and they fought. And they lose. Same way it's going to occur in the book of Revelation. In the same way it's going to happen even as it did here. Remember, Rahab said, we all know that God has given you the land. Isn't that what she said? We all know what the Lord God has done for you. Rahab was willing to come and say, mercy, mercy, and receive salvation as a result. But the rest were not. And so they perish. Even as they will perish during the tribulation. It's judgment and judgment and judgment from the Lord God comes. The Bible says the earth dwellers will not repent, will not change, will not trust in the Lord, they will all die. Same way. Same type of judgment we see here will will then come again. So, 
So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword, utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on the mounds, or the tells, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. So already at the time of Joshua, there were tells. A tell is a mountain or mound that grows as a result of a city being destroyed and rebuilt, and destroyed and rebuilt, and destroyed and rebuilt, and each time it gets a little taller, a little taller, until you have, now I'm not talking about Mount Everest, but until you have mountains or tells uh, that cover up those areas. And even right here at the time of Joshua, if you go to Israel with us and you go to Megiddo, when we go to Megiddo, they've sliced out a, a piece looks like a pie that was cut out of Megiddo and it takes you all the way back the the ruins that they found go all the way back to the Canaanite period that's the time of Joshua's conquest man it's all there and we can have opportunity to go see it all so it goes on, verse 14, And all the spoil of these cities, the livestock, the children of Israel took as booty for themselves. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now here's what you need to understand about Joshua's conquest. Joshua's conquest required of him, with all the armies gathered together and one, to go across the midst of the Canaanite land to the south and to the north and to take all the chief cities, all the kingdoms, the areas that had the ability to raise up these huge armies. Joshua took all of them. The ruling parties, the ruling factions within the Canaan, within Canaan, within the promised land, were obliterated. Now, there's still lots of people there. There's still uh, Hivites and Parasites and Jebusites and Termites and all the otherites. They're all there. They're still in there. But, Joshua goes in in that main arm of the conquest and wipes out all their ability to gather together and fight as one. And then he's going to give the inheritance to each one of the tribes. And he's going to tell each one of the tribes, now when you go into your land, subdue it. It was their job to go in and push the enemies out, just that single tribe, to take care of their area. And the next tribe would take care of its area. And that's where the whole plan fell apart. Because they were tired of the battle. Tired of fighting. They just wanted to go take what they had and enjoy it. They wanted to go have what they had, put their feet up, kick back and relax. I mean, we should have the right to do that, right? Well, the Bible tells us we will have that time. But folks, that time's going to come when we see Jesus Christ face to face. For he is our Sabbath rest. What is it that the scripture says when we see him? He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. 
Until that time, we are in enemy territory. In enemy territory, you have battles, things to fight. There's going to be constantly those issues. The Bible says our life here is like grass. It's here today, gone tomorrow. The older we get, the more we understand that to be true, right? I mean, there were times when we were young that we could do things we can't do anymore. Yeah. Amen. I was locked out of my office, uh, uh, not this office here, another office uh, a few years ago. And I needed to get in. So I had broke in a number of times. And what I needed to do was I just bring a chair over to this desk. On top of the desk was a window. The window was not ever something you couldn't open, so I could open that window. That's an office inside of an office inside of an office. And, and open that window, climb through the window. It's not very hard. Reach over to the right, open the door, and I'm in. Doesn't sound like it would take an a, a Olympic athlete to do that, does it? So I jump up on that desk, and I go through the window in my mind like a cat. In reality, more like a stumbling hippopotamus through a window. My foot gets caught on a rail, so my feet, as I go through the window, are above my head. By the way, that's never a good way to go through. By land on my hands, in my mind, I'm still thinking, I'm a cat. I'm a cat. This is fine. It's all under control. So I catch myself with my hands like this, and, I, and I'm scooting up like that. And as I come up, that's where the door jam was. And all you heard throughout the entire office, besides the clunk, clunk, clunk of some 200 and some pounds falling through a window, was the sound of this metal door jam getting a, its first dent ever. Instantly, I bust my eyebrow open. So I get blood running down my face, all to just to try to get into my office. Blood running down my face. Now, you know, whenever that happens, you pop right up, right? Ooh, I'm going to put a little uh, Kleenex on my eye. Like, okay, it's okay. I hope nobody didn't see that. You know, open the door. Okay, I'm, I'm in my office now. <laughs> we, we are deteriorating. Yeah. So what do I do now? I find one of my kids to get in if I'm locked out. Because they still can move like a cat. Dad just thinks he can. It's that idea that life here is constantly, from the minute we're born, on the downhill slide. The minute we're born, we're starting to die. But the cool thing is, what we do with this life, it echoes in eternity, right? The choices we make, especially the choice that says, hey, I'm going to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to live my life for him. And then whatever I do here, it matters. Or I can choose to live my life here for like that's all that there is, right? And what do I have to show for it at the end? Nothing. None of this stuff goes with us. 
None of that stuff comes. So we see Joshua was obedient and he did what God told him to do and he fulfilled all the plan that God had for him because he lived this life to go on. But when he passed the torch on to the next generation, they didn't take it. They didn't go forward like they could have. They didn't go forward like they should have. So Joshua took all this land in verse 16. The mountains... The mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. That was seven years of battle. The northern campaign was a seven-year war. The main battle was won in a day. But as they went around city to city dealing with kingship kingship, and Joshua taking care of those areas that God had directed him to, seven years, seven years that battle rages on. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Folks, every time the Lord God reaches out to someone with compassion or reaches out to them with grace, and they slap his hand away, they're one step closer to that hardening. They're gaining ground on that time when God's not going to reach out anymore and judgment will come. We know that judgment is going to come. The Bible says in the last days, scoffers will come and say, where is the coming of the Lord? We've been talking about it forever, but all things go on as they always have. Is that right? When you look at the news, is that what you think? Well, this is how it's always been. I mean, gosh, almost every year I hear about tsunamis wiping out hundreds of thousands of people, right? Or earthquakes that utterly obliterate humongous areas. In fact, we can watch YouTube. And in that moment on YouTube when we're watching the earthquake in Japan and the tsunami that came through, we're even detached from the reality that in that moment that we're watching, thousands of people were dying right then. But that's just like every day, right? I mean, that's always been that way. I grew up my whole life, never heard of a tsunami, except in the movies. We talked about tidal waves, but in the last, what, uh, how long has it been? Seven years between two of them? The Bible talks about that, right? The beginning of birth pangs, the earthquakes and wars in various places. Right now, as we're talking, there's a Sudanese army made up of believers that are trying to protect the, the women and children of the Christian uh, areas around from the Muslim armies that are coming down through and trying to kill them all. And while we're having a service, I don't even know if any of them are still alive. Every one of them could be dead. But that's how it's always been, right? It's not... The times that we are in have never been. 
And when we turn aside from that salvation that God is offering us, we are taking a step closer to judgment. And you and I, when we decide today, I'm not going to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm not submitting myself to the Lord and what He has for me today. Then we've lost one day that we don't ever get back. It's just gone. And those people we didn't talk to, it's just gone. And the opportunities that are passed, they're just gone. You don't get them back. That's why God calls us to make something out of each day. The scripture says, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And the psalmist was talking about a very specific day. And I believe for every single day we draw breath is that day, that opportunity to live that life that God's calling us to, right? To accomplish those things that the Lord wants to do. So that we, not like the Canaanites or like the people that we know that are heading headlong into destruction without Jesus Christ, are coming into a time of judgment. A judgment will fall. For God is not slack concerning his promises. It will come. And when it comes, it's too late for mercy then. It's too late, just like it was for them, too late. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron to Debir and Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. And none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. If you're into biblical history at all, that should be interesting. That's the same Gaza we hear about now, by the way, in the news all the time, the Gaza Strip. Same Gaza. But the other one, Gath, 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 somewhere, I've heard that name before. Oh, yeah. There was this little shepherd boy, and his whole family didn't really care about him. In fact, on the most important day of their family's history, he didn't even get invited to the dinner. You see, the prophet was coming. And the prophet, that's a big deal when the prophet, the prophet didn't just come to everybody's house. The prophet was coming. And he wanted to see all the kids. And so they lined up all the children and the prophet walked through and said, the Lord chooses none of these. Don't you have any more kids? Oh, just a rut. We, we don't even let him stay in the house. He stays with the sheep. His name was David, right? He had a fight with a guy, big guy. You remember his name? Goliath. Goliath. You know where Goliath was from? Gath. Joshua wiped out all the Anakim except for these three cities. And when David came along, there was still some there. Just showing that as the tribes came in, They didn't finish the job that Joshua started for them. They didn't complete their part. And so Goliath. And when David fought Goliath, we know that he took how many stones? You guys remember? He takes five stones. When he takes his five stones, why? Because Goliath had how many brothers? Four brothers. So that means there's at least five giants left. And now they were Philistines. Because those were Philistine cities. They become Philistine strongholds. 
And you know how long you have to wait for those to become Philistine strongholds? About eight pages. By the time we get to the judges, they're going to be having issues with those cities already at that time. Well, Scripture goes on. Now, none are... None of the Anakim were left except in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord said to Moses. And Joshua gave as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. In chapter 12, we're just going to go through chapter 12, just kind of a <clears throat> rehash of the battles. But at the end of chapter 11, the war's over. Joshua's part is done. He's going to now pass a torch as they enter into the land and they get their inheritance, the divisions that they're going to inherit. Now these were the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan. So this is the first battles. Moses fought these battles. Toward the rising of the sun, that would be what direction? East. Setting of the sun is west. Rising of the sun from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and on the eastern Jordan plain, one king was Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt with the Heshbon and ruled half of Gilead from Aor, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, to the middle of the river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites. And the eastern Jordan plain from the Sea of Chinneroth. Now, the Sea of Chinneroth, remember I told you? What else is that known as? Sea of Galilee. Okay, Chinneroth, Sea of Galilee, as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, which would be which one? The Dead Sea, right? We know that today as the Dead Sea. Then the road to Beth Jeshemoth and southward below the slopes of Pisgah. The other king was Og of Bashan. Remember, Og was another giant, right? Og was another giant. Remember in the book of Genesis chapter 6, when it talks about the Nephilim and the the, the attitude of, of this, when giants were on the land, it says they were here then and also after. So it was not just that they were destroyed during the flood. Whatever Satan did to accomplish the Nephilim was accomplished again. Because the Bible is very specific that Noah and his family were pure in all their generations. That means there was no quote-unquote, giant blood in them. But whatever Satan did in Genesis chapter 6 that brought on the flood, or what I believe brought on the flood, uh, is going to occur again somewhere within history because it brings that same Nephilim, Anakim, Raphaim, all these guys that are, are going to come across. So we study that again at later times, but the point is, nonetheless, those people were real, and Og of Bashan was one of them. Uh, he reigned over <clears throat> Mount Hermon, over Salka, over all Bashan, as far as the border of the Jeshurites and the Malachites, and over half of Gilead to the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So already, Reuben and Gad... Their inheritance is finished, right? Because they didn't care to cross the Jordan into the promised land. They were satisfied on the other side. And that's always a scary place to be, don't you think? To say, I'm satisfied with where I am with the Lord right now. 
should always want more, always moving forward. Listen, the Bible describes our relationship with God as a walk, right? Not a stand, not a sit, not a put my feet up and relax, a walk. If I'm not walking, then I'm falling behind. The children of Israel should have all gone across. But anyway, these guys, they have their possession. And then these are the kings of the country which Joshua, the children of Israel, conquered. On this side of the Jordan, on the west, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon as far as Mount Halak, and to the ascents of Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession, according to their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, in the wilderness, in the south, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebron won. The king of Jarmoth won. The king of Lachish won. The king of Eglon won. The king of Gezer won. The king of Debir won. The king of Geder won. The king of Hormah won. The king of Arad won. The king of Libna won. The king of Adullam won. The king of Machedah won. The king of Bethel won. The king of Tapua won. The king of Hefer won. The king of Aphek won. The king of Lasharon won. The king of Madon won. The king of Hazor won. The king of Shimron, Meron won. The king of Asaphath won. The king of Tanakh won. The king of Megiddo won. The king of Kedish won. The king of Jokniam in Carmel won. The king of Dor in the heights of Dor won. The king of the people of Gilgal won. The king of Tirzah won. All the kings, 31. 31 is an interesting number. In the Hebrew, words, letters have numeric value. The number for the word El, which is the word God, the number designation for the word El is also 31. God is the one They gave them the victory through those 31 kings so that they could enter into the promised land. But was the battle over? No. took me a long time to get that, guys, because I'm I'm more than happy to have the battle over. And then I had children. And I thought, you know, when they're not babies and they're not crying anymore and we don't have to get up in the middle of the night with them, then everything will be good. I'll be able to put up my feet and rest easy. Oops. Because right after they stop doing that, they start walking. And then they get into everything. God forbid you try to take a nap. Because they're going to find the talcum powder, the baby powder, or the chili powder, or some powder... And they're going to take a top off of it, and then they're going to create this humongous mess. They'll be playing in it. Don't leave a razor laying around. So one of my boys shaved his fingernails off with dad's razor, because that's what you ought to do if you find a razor, right? Oh, will it do that to this finger? Yeah. I should have known what was coming, huh? Son, what happened to all your fingernails? Shaved them all off. Good idea. How's that feel right now? Not so good. 
But then they grew up, got into more trouble. Then they got to, oh, Lord Almighty, if only when they're 20 and they leave. How's that work out? No, because they go out, get married, and come back with more. It never stops. When do I get to stop being my children's father? Never. Never. I signed on to that job. I didn't know it at the time. But I signed on to that job forever. Until we're finished here. And when I signed on with Jesus Christ, I gave my life to Him. I signed on for a battle from now till I see His face. And I'm okay with that. Because whenever I think about it, I see Him on the cross looking at me, saying, I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And all I want to do is love Him back. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stay with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time we can come before you. We thank you for the truth of your word, God, that your word has something for us. Lord, I pray that we would just have a hunger and a thirst to know you. And we come to know you through your word. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and magnified, God, as we just seek to draw near unto you. Lord, that we would be convicted, God, and a desire to constantly be moving forward never satisfied on this side always wanting more of you that we might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death i must decrease so that he might increase God, do a work in us as we draw near to know you. We give you all the praise and the glory for that work that you have begun and you will see to completion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.